0: Welcome to Time and Tide, Nantucket's Maritime History Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Schwanfelder, Maritime Studies instructor for Egan Maritime Institute. Listen along for stories from the high seas that rise from the depths of despair to the peak of human hope and salvation. This podcast is brought to you by Egan Maritime Institute. Through our programs and educational opportunities, we work to inspire the appreciation and preservation of Nantucket's maritime culture and seafaring legacy. Time and tide wait for no man. Welcome back, everybody. I just wanna take a quick minute to thank all of you for tuning in over the last few episodes. The response so far has been amazing and we're so glad everyone is really enjoying the stories. Just a reminder that in addition to finding us on our website, TimeAndTideNantucket.com, you can tune in on the Apple Podcast app, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Today we shift gears just a bit as I talk about the history and what life was like aboard the first two lightships posted out on the desolate South Shoals of Nantucket. Enjoy. Episode 4, the Nantucket South Shoals Lightship. Lightship service in the United States spans a period of 165 years, from 1820 to 1985. These floating lighthouses mark shifting shoals and sandbars, harbor entrances, river mouths, or any other hazardous location on the water where the building of a stationary lighthouse was impossible. 179 lightships were built between 1820 and 1952. In the early years, the ships were made of wood, powered only by sail and fitted with oil lanterns. As technology advanced, ships were eventually constructed of steel, powered by steam and diesel engines. In 1915, the peak of lightship operations, there were 54 stations in the United States, 36 on the East Coast, two in the Gulf, five on the West Coast, and 11 in the Great Lakes. One of the largest concentrations of lightship anchorages on the east coast was the highly trafficked and heavily shoaled waters of Nantucket Sound. But it goes without saying that by far the most isolated, most exposed, and most extreme post in the entire lighthouse service was the lone Nantucket South Shoals lightship, standing a year-round vigil some 25 miles out to sea south of Nantucket at the tip of the dreaded South Shoals. There have been numerous lightships that served this post from 1854 to 1983, with many a tale to tell. But in this episode, I focus on the particularly fascinating history of the first two lightships that made station on Nantucket's South Shoals. Please see the notes in the episode description for a complete bibliography of source material. With the growing numbers of vessels engaged in the transatlantic and coastwise trades, the dangers of Nantucket Shoals became more and more a matter of governmental concern. In November, 1853, the Lighthouse Service announced that a lightship would be placed there, moored at Davis South Shoal. The mariner chosen to be the first keeper of this lightship was Captain Samuel Bunker, a veteran whaling master. Selected as the vessel to serve as the first lightship here was a bluff-bowed former whale ship, rigged as a brig. Her masts were painted yellow with white mastheads and an oval openwork daymark, five feet in diameter, hoisted some 60 feet above her decks. The hull of the 100-foot-long vessel was painted red, with the words Nantucket South Shoals lettered in white on both sides. Two oil lamps were placed at each masthead, lighted by 8-inch argon fountain lamps burning whale oil. Elevated 45 feet above the deck, the lamps could be seen at a distance of 15 miles in clear weather. During that winter, the lightship was fitted out at New Bedford. On May 26, 1854, Superintendent Knox of the Lighthouse Service inspected and approved the work. On June 10, under Captain Bunker, she sailed from New Bedford with the lighthouse tender George Steers, a schooner, in company. On the following day, she anchored under Sankity Head, waiting a favorable tide, reaching her station on June 12th and anchoring two miles south of Davis South Shoal in 14 fathoms of water. The initial experience of the first lightship on Nantucket South Shoal was enough to justify the opinion of many mariners that no ship could live in such an exposed location. After a series of storms had more than tested the seaworthiness of the old whale ship, the crisis came in a wild northeast gale that swept across the Atlantic in December of 1854. For three days, the lightship withstood the buffeting of breaking seas and tearing wind, and her mooring chains were strained to the utmost. At last, the chain could take no more of the violent tugging and snapped, setting the lightship adrift at the mercy of the gale. Only the seamanship of Captain Bunker and his crew kept the vessel from being driven into the maze of the shoals, but in getting sail on her, it was necessary to run well to the westward. The sails were ripped to shreds, and Captain Bunker was unable to keep a course, so that the lightship simply drove before the gale. On the night of January 5, 1855, she was cast ashore at Montauk Point, some 50 miles to the west, on the northeasterly end of Long Island. Fortunately, Captain Bunker and his crew survived, although the lightship was abandoned where she stranded. Nearly a century later, the journal of Captain Bunker for this period on Nantucket Lightship was presented to the Nantucket Historical Association. The donor, a grandson of Captain Bunker, wrote, I have always known of the experiences of that winter out on those dangerous shoals. My recollection about the stranding of the ship was the storm was so heavy that when the ship struck, the men could not see any distance and did not know immediately of their nearness to habitation. Also that my grandfather had to labor hard with them to keep them active and struggling in order to keep them alive. My grandmother was averse to her husband taking the job at the beginning, and this experience was such that she prevailed upon him to retire from the service. End quote. Well might Captain Bunker's perceptive wife have had premonitions about that first winter for a lightship on Nantucket South Shoals. The importance of the South Shoals station to shipping had been determined, however, by the short time the original lightship had remained on her station. So the government lost no time in taking steps for the construction of another vessel. Congress promptly made an appropriation, and a substantial, seaworthy vessel was the result. She was built at the Kittery Navy Yard of White Oak and Live Oak throughout, and so well was she constructed that she occupied the station nearly 37 years. The vessel was numbered one and was 103 feet long. She took her place on the South Shoals in January 1856, and although she had no power other than sails, she was able to withstand the pounding of the seas and the thrashing of the gales. The old number one had some thrilling experiences, breaking from her anchors many times, but always withstanding the fury of the elements, and several times making her way back to her station unaided, picking up her moorings, and resuming her lonesome vigil. In all probability, the worst experience throughout her long career occurred during the heavy storm of October 13, 1878. When a northeast gale parted her moorings and before the storm abated, she had been driven hundreds of miles out to sea and was down near bermuda over 800 miles from her station when the gale ended the lightship made her way back under sail reached port safely and after necessary repairs were completed she resumed her station gustav kobe a well-known author and correspondent for many notable magazines of the day wrote a remarkably rich and detailed article about life on the number 1 South Shoal lightship after spending a week aboard the vessel in 1891. The exposé was published in The Century magazine in August of that same year and offers a rare glimpse into the lives of the crew and the finer details of the ship. The following passages are taken directly from this valuable primary source. Life on the South Shoal Lightship by Gustav Kobe. From Century Magazine, August 1891. Number one, Nantucket New South Shoal pitches and plunges, tears and rolls, year in and year out, 24 miles off Sankety Head, Nantucket Island, with the broad ocean to the eastward and rips and breakers to the westward, northward, and southward. Number one, Nantucket New South Shoal is a lightship the most desolate and dangerous station in the United States Lighthouse establishment. Upon this tossing island, out of sight of land, exposed to the fury of every tempest, and without a message from home during all the stormy months of winter, and sometimes even longer, 10 men, braving the perils of wind and wave and the worst terrors of isolation, trim the lamps whose light warns thousands of vessels from certain destruction, and hold themselves ready to save life when the warning is in vain. When vessels have been driven helplessly upon the shoals over which the South Shoal lightship stands guard, her crew have not hesitated to lower their boats in seas which threatened every moment to stave or engulf it, and to pull, often in the teeth of a furious gale, to the rescue of the shipwreck, not only saving their lives, but afterward sharing with them, often to their own great discomfort, such cheer as the lightship affords. Before we left Nantucket for the lightship, I gleaned from casual remarks made by grizzled old salts who had heard of our proposed expedition that I might expect something different from a cruise under summer skies. The captain's watch of five men happened to be ashore on leave, and when I called on the captain and told him I had chartered a tug to take Mr. Tabor and myself out to the lightship and to call for me a week later, he said with a pleasant smile, "'You've arranged to be called for in seven days.' But you can congratulate yourself if you get off in seven weeks. As he shook my hand at the door, he made this parting remark. When you set foot on Nantucket again, after you've been to the lightship, you will be pleased. Another old whaling captain told me that the loneliest thing he had ever seen at sea was a polar bear floating on a piece of ice in the Arctic Ocean. The next loneliest object to that had been the South Shoal lightship but the most cheering comment on the expedition was made by an ex-captain of the cross rip lightship, which is anchored in Nantucket Sound in full sight of land, and is not nearly so exposed or desolate as the station at the South Shoal. He said very deliberately and solemnly, If it weren't for the disgrace it would bring to my family, I'd rather go to state's prison. I was also told of times when the South Shoal lightship so pitched and rolled that even an old whale man who had served on her 17 years and had before that made numerous whaling voyages felt squeamish, which is the sailor fashion of intimating that even the saltiest old salt is apt to experience symptoms of mal-demur aboard a lightship. Life on a lightship therefore presented itself to us as a term of solitary confinement combined with the horrors of seasickness. The South Shoal lightship being so far out at sea and so dangerous of approach Owing to the shoals and rips which extend all the way out to her from Nantucket, and which would be fatal barriers to large vessels, the trip can be made only in good weather. That is the reason the crew are cut off so long in winter from communication with the land. The lighthouse tender rarely, if ever, ventures out to the vessel at all from December to May, only occasionally utilizing a fair day and a smooth sea to put out far enough just to sight the light ship and to report her as safe at her station. The tender is a little black side-wheel craft called the verbena and is a familiar sight to shipping which pass through the vineyard sound. But during long months the crew of the South Shoal Lightship see their only connecting link between their lonely ocean home and their firesides ashore loom up for a moment against the wintry sky to vanish again, leaving them to their communion with the waves and gulls, awakening longings which strong wills had kept dormant and intensifying the bitterness of their desolation. Only the particularly dangerous character of the coast could have warranted the government in placing a lightship in so exposed a position. Nantucket is a veritable ocean graveyard. There are records of over 500 disasters to vessels on its shores and outlying reefs. How many ships, hidden by fog or sleet from the watchers on shore and never heard from, have been lost on the ladder, is a question to which the sea will never give answer. But many a poor fellow whose end has remained a mystery to anxious hearts at home has laid his bones upon the sand of the Nantucket Shoals, which are a constant menace both to coasters taking the outside route for New England and to European shipping, which shapes its course for New York after sighting the South Shoal lightship. This vessel therefore stands guard not only over the new South Shoal near which it is anchored, but over 24 miles of rips and reefs between it And the shore of Nantucket. It has been on this station since 1856. A lightship was placed on the old South Shoal some miles further in during 1855, but its cable parted in one of the winter storms and the vessel was wrecked on Montauk. Meanwhile, the new South Shoal had been discovered and the new lightship was anchored some two miles to the southeast of it. The Shoal itself is marked by a red buoy. Number one is a schooner of 275 tons, 103 feet long overall, with 24 feet breadth of beam, and staunchly built of white and live oak. She has two hulls, the space between them being filled through holes at short intervals in the inner side of the bulwarks with salt, to keep her sweet as a nautical paradox runs. These holes are closed by black plugs which are attached to the bulwarks by short bits of tarred rope. And the line of plugs running the length of the vessel forms a series of black dots near the rail, which at once strikes the eye as a distinguishing mark between this and other ships. She has fore and aft lantern masts seventy one feet high, including topmasts, and directly behind each of the lantern masts a mast for sails forty two feet high. Forty four feet up the lantern masts are day marks reddish-brown hoop-iron gratings which enable other vessels to sight the lightship more readily. The lanterns are octagons of glass in copper frames five feet in diameter, four feet nine inches high, which weighs, all told, about a ton. Some 900 gallons of oil are taken aboard for service during the year. The lanterns are lowered into houses built around the masts. When the lamps have been lighted and the roofs of the lantern houses opened, They work on hinges and are raised by tackle. The lanterns are hoisted by means of winches to a point about 25 feet from the deck. Were they to be hoisted higher, they would make the ship top-heavy. A conspicuous object forward is the large fog bell swung 10 feet above the deck. The prevalence of fog makes life on the South Shoal lightship especially dreary. During one season, 55 days out of 70 were thick. And for twelve consecutive days and nights the bell was kept tolling at two minute intervals. The crew became so used to its iron voice that when the fog lifted they had to accustom themselves to getting along without it, the silence actually disturbing their sleep the first night. Shackled to the Keelson is a chain of two inch thickness, which runs through a deck pipe to the deck and over the ladder forward to a hawse pipe, through which it runs into the water full one hundred and five fathoms to the mushroom an anchor shaped like an inverted saucer and weighing 6,500 pounds, which holds the vessel in 18 fathoms of water. It is difficult to imagine that any power could part a chain of such strength, yet the South Shoal lightship has been set adrift 23 times, leaving a regular mushroom plantation at the bottom of the sea around the spot over which she is anchored. On one of these occasions, she was 14 days at sea, and on another she came to anchor in New York Harbor. In spite of her two sail-masts, she is rather indifferently rigged for such emergencies, carrying only tri-sails to the sail-mass, a square sail to the 4 lantern masts, a fore staysail and a jib. She cannot beat against the wind, and hence when she parts her cable in an offshore gale, she is blown out to sea until the wind shifts to a favorable point. The South Shoal, like all lightships, is very high in the bow and heavily timbered, built to stay. It is in frequent danger of collision from other vessels, and as its preservation is of such importance to shipping interests, it is constructed so that of the two ships, it will be the one to survive the shock. Life aboard a lightship is in itself so desolate that the men's quarters are made as roomy as possible. The captain and mate have a pleasant cabin aft with two staterooms, a large table, lockers, and the ship library, a small case of miscellaneous books supplied by the lighthouse board. A door leads from the cabin into the berth deck, which occupies the space usually taken for the upper hold. On each side are bunks which slope in towards the middle so that their occupants will not be thrown out by the violent rolling and lurching of the ship. In front of these bunks are the men's chests, which they also use for seats. Forward on the berth deck is the cooking stove and beyond it the mess table. The routine of work on a lightship is quite simple. At sunrise the watch lowers the lights. At 6 a.m. the captain or the mate stands in the doorway leading from the cabin into the berth deck and shouts, All Hands! The men tumble out of their bunks and dress, breakfast being served at 20 minutes past 6. At half past seven, the lamps are removed from the lanterns and taken below to be cleaned and filled. In smooth weather, this duty can be performed in about two hours, but if the vessel is rolling and pitching, the task may be prolonged by an hour or two. When the lamps have been returned to the lanterns, there remains nothing for the crew to do except to clean ship and go on watch until sundown when the lamps are lighted and the lanterns hoisted. The crew is divided into the captain's watch and the mate's watch of five each. Twice between spring and winter, each watch goes ashore for two months, so that each member of the crew is aboard the lightship eight months in the year. It is not believed that they could stand the life longer than this. In fact, many men throw up their work as soon as they can get ashore. Three members of the South Shoal crew have, however, seen unusually long terms of service, 21, 19, and 17 years, respectively and others have served on her a remarkably long time when the desolate character of the service is considered. This is probably due to the fact that the dangers of this exposed station warn off all but those inured to the hardships of a seafaring life. The men who have been there so long are old whalemen, accustomed to voyages of several years' duration and to the perils of a whaleman's life. The pay aboard the South Shoal is somewhat higher than other lightships. The captain receives $1,000, the mate $700, and the crew $600 per year. The emotional stress under which this crew labors can hardly be realized by anyone who has not been through a similar experience. The sailor on an ordinary ship has at least the inspiration of knowing that he is bound for somewhere, that in due time his vessel will be laid on her homeward course, that storm and fog are but incidents of the voyage. He is on a ship that leaps forward, full of life and energy, with every lash of the tempest. But no matter how the lightship may plunge and roll, no matter how strong the favoring gale may be, she is still anchored two miles southeast of the New South Shoal. In the winter, when the rigging begins tuning up until it shrieks like a gigantic harp at the touch of the hurricane, The poor fellow who while dreaming of home is awakened to take his turn at the watch on deck is exposed to the full fury of the elements then the ship being unable to use herself butts at the waves so that the bow is submerged one moment and the boom the next while the spray flies like a living smoke all over her sheathing even the mast to the height of 50 feet with ice at times the water and spray freeze so quickly upon her that the ice extends for 12 feet or more on each side of the bow, and a thick layer of it covers her deck, while the bulwarks are built up with it until holes have to be chopped through it to enable the crew to look out to sea. It also forms to the thickness of a barrel around the rigging. In fact, it has covered the ship so completely that not a splinter of wood could be seen. In some seasons, the severest storms have burst over the vessel about Christmas time so that on Christmas Eve each man has passed his watch, standing forward on the icy deck, pulling at the rope of the lightship bell, with the wind shrieking in the stays, the spray dashing over him, and sleet drifting wildly about him. Besides enduring the hardships incidental to their duties aboard the lightship, the crew have done noble work in saving life. While the care of the lightship is considered of such importance to shipping that the crew are instructed not to expose themselves to dangers outside their special line of duty, and they would therefore have the fullest excuse for not risking their lives in rescuing others, they have never hesitated to do so. When a few winters ago the City of Newcastle went ashore on one of the shoals near the lightship and strained herself so badly that although she floated off, she soon filled and went down stern foremost, all hands, Twenty-seven in number were saved by the South Shoal crew and kept aboard her over two weeks. This is the largest number saved at one time by the South Shoal. But the lightship crew have faced greater danger on several other occasions. One stormy morning about the middle of January, the watch described a small dark object over the water several miles to windward and drifting rapidly away on the strong tide. The captain, on examining it through the glass, thought he perceived signs of life. In spite of the heavy sea that threatened every moment to stave the lifeboat, it was lowered, and the crew pulled in the teeth of the furious gale towards the object. As they drew nearer, they made out a man feebly waving a cloth. A full view as they came up disclosed the evidence of an ocean tragedy. Here, driven before the wind and tide, and at the mercy of a winter storm, was a small raft. Stretched upon it was a corpse, held fast by the feet, which had caught under the boom. On the corpse sat a man, his face buried in his hands, and nearly dead with exposure. The man who had waved them stood up on the grating, holding himself upright by a rope, which, fastened at two ends of the raft, passed over his shoulder." Having taken the two men who were still alive into the boat, the captain of the south shoal at once asked them what disposition he should make of the corpse. Being, like all sailors, superstitious, he was unwilling to take the dead body into the boat and bury it from the south shoal, lest it should sink directly under the light ship and bring ill luck upon her. The poor fellow shipmates agreed that he should be given over to the sea then and there. So the captain, raising his voice above the storm, pronounced a verse of scripture, and drawing the corpse's feet from under the boom, allowed it to slide off from the raft. Often, vessels lie near to the lightship for provisions and water, and during the war, when the Confederate cruiser Tallahassee destroyed the fishing fleet on St. George's Bank, three of the crews, rather than be made prisoners, took to their boats and pulled all the way to the South Shoal lightship. It might be supposed that after the crew have been subjected to the desolation of a winter 24 miles out at sea, their hearts would bound with joy when the verbena heaves in sight in the spring. But the sight of her is apt to raise the anxious thought, what news does she bring from home? But after all is said of the hardships endured by the crew of number one Nantucket, New South Shoal, the fact remains that the men are about as hale a looking set of fellows as one can find anywhere then too they at times discover in very gratifying ways that their vocation is appreciated. A fruiter may lie long enough to transfer to the lightship a welcome gift of bananas and oranges, and not infrequently passing vessels signal their readiness to take the crew's mail off and to forward it from port. The lightship's utter isolation from other parts of the world is, from certain points of view, a great hardship, but from others it has its advantages. When there's a heavy sea running, the view of the ocean as one lays off in a warm sun is unrivaled. The proximity of the rips and shoals give the scene a beauty entirely its own. On every shoal there glistens at regular intervals the white curve of a huge breaker. Sunsets can be witnessed from the deck of this vessel which, if faithfully reproduced on canvas, would be unhesitatingly pronounced the gorgeous offspring of the artist's imagination. I remember one evening when the sun vanished beneath a bank of fog, permeating it with a soft purple light and edging it with a fringe of reddish gold. Right above it, the sky melted from a soft green into the lovely blue that still lingered from the glorious day. Overhead, the clouds were whipped out in shreds of fiery yellow, while in all directions around the ship was an undulating expanse of rose-colored sea. Gradually, the colors faded away. The creaking of the winches as the crew raised the lanterns broke upon the evening silence. Two pathways of light streamed over the waves, and number one, Nantucket New South Shoal, was ready to stand guard for another night. All right, we're back again. Katie's joining us. Life on the South Shoals Lightship. What do you think, Katie?
1: Sounds pretty intense out there.
0: It's very intense out there.
1: I love the descriptions in this episode. It really puts you on board the ship. And if anyone's ever spent the night out at sea in stormy weather, I just, I can't imagine people doing that for so long of a time.
0: Yeah, it's a pretty desolate spot for sure. And I do think about when we have extreme weather here on Nantucket, how much more extreme it would be. Being on a ship 25 miles out in the shoals, offshore.
1: For days on end. Oh Day, my gosh. Months, on end. months on end.
0: Months on end. Months on end. Yeah, the winter, the winter term that these guys spent would be four to five months. Four months was a term, but it could be much longer because of the weather to get them off.
1: Incredible. What a way to make a living. Wow. Yeah. So I had a question about the light ships that you spoke about. I know a lot of us are used to seeing the big red Nantucket light ship boat that comes here in the summer. There's also one that's often parked in Boston with the big red hull and the white lettering that says Nantucket. And were those ships similar looking? I mean, obviously, these are years later, but what would the main differences be to the ships you chose to talk about in the early years?
0: Yeah, the early ships were like I said, the first one was just an old outfit whale ship. They were wood hulls, sailing ships, no power, wow. absolutely no communication with the land. Um, it would have been—I couldn't even imagine it. The right. ships that we see in Boston Harbor are of a later generation. They served on the same post, still a very desolate location. I think some of the later ones served a little further out. Uh, but as far as how they looked with the double mass, with the lanterns, the red hull, with the, the lettering, That told the name of the ship. Uh, That was pretty consistent throughout all of the ships. They served from 1854 to 1983. So the ones in Boston Harbor are made of steel. They're diesel-powered. They're much larger. I think the LV-112 is one of the largest, if not the largest, ever built. Um, They would have more modern radio equipment and weather equipment. The ones that I talked about in this episode are the first two, which are incredibly primitive. Just the what life would have been like aboard them is pretty, and pretty so, mind-boggling.
1: So with so many ships over the years and probably endless stories. I
0: think there were 10 or 11. I think the last one only served for if a day. But I think about 10 that served some period of station on the South Shoals.
1: On that location. Yep. But how did you choose for this episode in particular? What drew you to talking about those two ships and this time era?
0: Just because it would have been so far away and so remote and really absolutely no connection to the land. Um,
1: And they were really the first ones to be stationed out there in this spot. Like they were basically the experimental crew.
0: Right. And it was such a a hazardous location and it was such, there was such a need to have a navigational beacon and a light beacon um, Mm -hmm. to mark this location that they chose to put these boats and these crews out in such extreme conditions.
1: And so in addition to the storms and the stormy seas and the shoals, the fog, as we all know, plays a really important role in navigating around the island. And I just keep thinking about what you said um, with 50 out of 70 days of fog. We know what it's like to be on Nantucket with even a few days of fog or gray weather. And it's beautiful, but then we're pretty excited to welcome back the sunshine. Can you speak a little bit more about maybe why the fog lingered so long out there? on the ship and in that area?
0: Absolutely. It's in an interesting location where the Gulf Stream comes close. It's warm water that comes from the south and the Gulf Stream it comes close to the Labrador current, which is cold water that comes from the north. And the, the meeting of the warm and the cold water uh, causes a lot of condensation. So out there, we had, we had no Nantucket fog, the Gray Lady, but out on those shoals, it is it can be incredibly thick for incredible lengths of time. And it posed a great risk. Uh, it touches a bit on it in the article, about a great risk to collision because sure. you can't see any ships coming to you. Uh, there were collisions out there. And one of note, uh, Light Vessel 117, I believe, there, the Olympic, the sister ship to the Titanic in 1934, was homing in on its radio beacon and basically hit it dead on, split it in half. Oh, my gosh. And, um, yeah, some of the crew died on that but the fog was incredibly treacherous
1: out wow there. and so the bell that they were talking about or the horn bell right the a bell. bell
0: on the on the early ships it would have been a bell now it's more of a they would have, the later generations would have had a a fog horn. and
1: that was to alert oncoming yeah. ships back then before they had any kind of you know radar or anything like
0: exactly. that exactly even with radar even with radio radar wow. radio signals i mean radar makes it a little easier but yeah that that noise is pretty necessary to let them know that they're there
1: And so in addition to these ships being navigational beacons, they also helped save many lives when people ran into danger out there, which of course, you know, kind of goes hand in hand with a lot of the other episodes we've heard about with life-saving. And was that a common occurrence for these ships to have to lower boats and save people? Or how did that work?
0: Fairly common. I mean, not every day, but if they saw a ship in distress and based on the waters that they were in, they definitely did. uh, They... Many times took it upon themselves to go out and get anyone in distress, or to be a, a place of refuge for people to come to and stay on. It. And there were some guys that would come and seek refuge on the lightship. It would have been a lovely sight to see if you're stuck out in the shoals. Uh, but then they would have to spend a little bit of time in that lightship until it it got resupplied, until a tender came out and they could get back off.
1: And speaking of, and I'm sure for the people that have been listening along to each episode. They probably caught a interesting detail that we've been talking about in the article that was written uh, for that you shared in this episode. He talks about an account from, I think, 10 years before where they spotted a small dark object with two men alive, one man dead, drifting on a raft. And this rescue sounds familiar. And I, I'm wondering, probably like a lot of the listeners, do we think this was indeed from the wreck of the hazard from one of our other episodes?
0: Yes, we might. Uh, good catch. If you are following along and paying attention, uh, the Wreck of the Hazard in Episode 2, there were two guys in the middle of the shoals in the winter of 1881 who had to make a raft and jump ship, and they drifted from the off Wisconsin, Nantucket, all the way out, 24 miles out to the light ship. Um, so we hear it. They don't say it specifically, but as far as we can tell, the details match up with the the three men who abandoned ship on the Hazard and made it the light ship. We hear it from the light ship's point of view.
1: So cool to hear that from a different point of view. Yeah. And I remember in the Hazard episode, you know, we talked about how then they stayed on the ship for almost a month until mm-hmm. one of the tenders was able to come out and bring The verbena, back to... which
0: was mentioned in this as well. Interesting. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, that's really cool. brings it all together. And I just, I love the descriptions from that article. Really, really puts you the on board the ship.
0: Pretty amazing. It's probably one of the best primary sources out there. This guy was a a well-written travel writer um, for many different notable magazines of the day. And he spent the week aboard, and he really wrote a great story.
1: Well, thank goodness you're sharing it with us today. That's pretty cool. My pleasure. Thanks, Evan.
0: Thank you, Katie. And thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next time. To learn more about Egan Maritime's mission and how to offer your support, visit eganmaritime.org. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the show. Follow us on Instagram, at Time and Tide Nantucket, and also on our website, www.timeandtidenantucket.com. Until next time, fair winds and following seas.